Hey, good morning, students. It's good to be with you again. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and find them and open up to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. We are barreling through Paul's letter to the Galatians. We've gone through the first four chapters. We have two chapters to go, and it'll take us about three weeks to wrap up this wonderful book of the Bible. I hope you've been uh, encouraged and edified and even challenged by what we've been teaching and learning about so far in Galatians. If you remember, in the first two chapters of Galatians, Paul is uh, basically appealing to his own authority as an apostle called by God. And in chapters 3 and 4, he gives us a, a theological argument for why his gospel is the true gospel and why the, uh, the teachings of these Judaizers is actually a false gospel. So this week, we're moving into what we call the ethical section of Galatians And that's Galatians 5 and 6. It's really, now that we know the truth of the gospel, what are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to live as Christians? So what we'll find today is that we are saved by faith alone in Christ alone. That's the good news of the gospel. But that faith that we receive from the Spirit is never alone. It always is producing something. It always leads to something else. So if, the, if you think of it like a tree, if you think about the roots of that tree, the roots of the gospel being faith, that that's how, that's how it, it's, it's, it's alive, that's how it gets its life, uh, then the fruit of the gospel or what it bears, what it produces, ought to be love. So the fruit of the gospel, or the root of the gospel rather, is faith, and the fruit of the gospel is love. So that bears The question for you and me as we think about this text today in Galatians chapter 5. If we don't have love in our lives, if we're not producing the fruit of the gospel, then what does that say about our roots? What does that say about our faith? If a tree is not producing fruit, then the health of the tree is called into question. So that's what we need to be thinking about this morning as we move into Galatians chapter 5. We're going to remember in this text all the work that Paul has put in to show the reader, to show you and me, that we are not saved by our works. So when we read this section, as we go into the ethical section of Galatians, if we're not careful, we'll read this text and we'll come away overwhelmed because we're going to keep seeing over and over, here are the things that we need to do. Here are the things that you should be doing. And if we're not careful, we'll start to think, Man, I have to do all of these things in order to be a Christian. I have to be doing all of these things to somehow get salvation. But that's not at all what Paul's arguing. Remember, for four chapters, he's been saying, your salvation is rooted in the finished work of Christ. Your works don't contribute to salvation. So we need to understand this section of Galatians from the posture of, we are already saved by grace through faith. We already have been declared righteous by Jesus. We already have been adopted into God's family. We already have the Spirit of Christ who dwells within us. And because of those things, now we can live gospel lives. So, uh, let's get to our text this morning. Galatians chapter 5. We're going to read 15 verses. Paul writes, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. 
I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Let's pray before we go any further. Oh God in heaven, we thank you again as we gather together today to read and to study your word. We thank you for the Bible. And Lord, we thank you specifically this morning for Paul's letter to the Galatians and this this charge for us to live in the freedom that you have given us by faith to live out a life filled with the truths of the gospel, to to do away with the false teachings of these Judaizers, to to have our hearts rid of anything that would lead us towards works-based righteousness, and instead that we would live in the freedom of the gospel, that we would produce the, the fruit of the gospel being love. So Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would help us to understand these texts, that we would be transformed by them, not just that we would have Uh, transformed minds, but that our lives would be shaped and formed by you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so as we move into the ethical section of Galatians, it's going to be like Paul charging the Galatian Christians to do certain things. And so uh, it's almost as if Paul is crying out to his brothers and sisters a a series of commands for them to obey. And hopefully we'll get this. If we will obey the words of the apostle, if we will obey the words of the Spirit of God who who inspired these words, then it will lead to life. It will lead to joy. It will lead to blessing. I'm not saying it's going to be easy, but it is what God intends for our lives. So his first charge is this. Paul is saying to you and me, live in true freedom. He says, live in true freedom. So, Uh, He says in uh, verse 1, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So freedom is is why Christ set us free. It's for freedom. Paul says that much in verse 1. But freedom is not just something that we possess, right? We don't just say, I am free. Free. No, freedom is something that we practice. We live our lives a certain way because we are free. Jesus has redeemed his people from the curse of the law. So Paul is saying, look, don't go back 
to slavery. Don't go back to oppression. Don't go back to the curse of the law. You don't have to live that life anymore. You've been redeemed. But what does freedom really mean? As Paul says it here, what what does it mean to be free? What does it mean that Christ has set us free? Especially in our context, right? In America, in the United States, freedom is synonymous with the ability to go after our natural desires. In other words, freedom means that you can do what you want, right? I mean, it's almost like a meme, right? That we do what we want because, because this is America, right? That's, that's what we do. We're, we live in freedom. We, we love liberty. It's a very individualistic, very American understanding of freedom. But I don't think that that's the, the full scope of what biblical freedom is, Listen to to John Stott talk about this text. He says, uh, Our former state, before we were Christians, our former state is portrayed as a slavery. Jesus Christ as a liberator. Conversion as an act of emancipation. And the Christian life as a life of freedom. So, So here's what he means. Here's what John Stott means. When we were in sin, before you and I became believers, before we placed our faith in Christ, when we were doing whatever our sinful flesh wanted to do, that was a kind of slavery. Christ has now liberated us from our sins. He's he's emancipated us from our natural desires that were bent away from God and towards sin. So now we are free from our own sinful desires. We're free from the curse of the law that leads to more sin. And now we are free to run to Jesus, to to run after him with new hearts and new lives. And Paul gives this warning then to anyone who wants to, to flirt with combining the freedom that we have in Christ with the slavery that the law brings. Look at verse two. He says, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Christ will be pointless if you accept circumcision instead of Christ. Now, why would Christ be pointless? Because you can't have it both ways, Paul says. You can't uh, live in freedom from the law and live in slavery to the law. You can't have it both ways. He even says in verse 4, look at this. He says, if, if you live this way, if you go back to living under the law, then you are severed from Christ. This is, this is wordplay, obviously, right? He's saying, if you would accept circumcision, then you are literally cut off from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. Now, is this teaching that we can lose our salvation? Is Paul saying to the Galatians, you Galatian Christians, if you go this way, you who were saved will no longer be saved. You who were adopted will no longer be adopted. You who were redeemed will no longer be redeemed. I don't think that's what he's saying. Actually, I'm confident that that's not what he's saying because Paul and the entire New Testament is unbelievably clear over and over again that that once God has you in his grasp, once he has taken you in, he will never cast you out, right? Romans 8 is a really clear example that there's no height, nor depth, 
nor angels, nor demons, nor principalities, nor anything in all creation that can separate us from the love of God. And so we know that once we are in Christ, once we are God's, then we are his forever. So what's going on in this text? What does it mean to be severed from Christ? What does it mean to fall away from grace? I think he's warning the Galatian churches that if they continue on this path of trying to be justified or trying to be righteous through their works rather than faith, then they will prove without doubt that their earlier confession of believing in Christ was not true. Right? It, it, Paul is saying, if you continue to run after the law, if you continue to run after your works in order to be righteous, then you never really believed that the work of Christ makes you righteous. You can tell a tree by its fruit, in other words. Phil Riken says it like this. He says, those who try to justify themselves are bound for hell, enslaved by a law they cannot keep, They are in God's infinite debt. And since they are trusting in themselves, Christ can no longer do them any good. Therefore, they have fallen from grace. So when we run after our own works, when we run after the the works of the law or the works of our flesh, we will run into slavery and a curse and death. And Christ will be of no advantage to us because our faith won't be in him. It will be in our works. Instead, Paul says, what what are we to do? Instead, he says, we await, this is verse 5, through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Now remember last week, we used this uh, big comparison between uh, Sarah and Hagar, between uh, Isaac and Ishmael. This is Paul's comparison of a covenant of grace or a covenant of works. And here's his point again. You can either put your hope in the law, in your flesh, that leads to slavery, or you can put your hope in the promise or in the spirit, which leads to life by faith. That's all Paul is saying here. He says, look, you can either run after the law and become enslaved again, or you can live by faith in the spirit and live in freedom. You can either be a slave or you can be free, but you can't be both. Now, this hope of righteousness that Paul talks about in verse 5 is Paul referring to the reality of eternity. He's saying, look, we as Christians, we're looking way ahead to when Christ comes back to declare all things righteous, to to judge the living and the dead. And, And one day, those of us who are in Christ by faith will be declared righteous before all of creation. Right? So you and I, as Christians, will stand before our judge, King Jesus, and he will say, because of your faith in what I have done for you, you are righteous in my sight. So we will be declared righteous in the end. This is what we call an eschatological, eschatology meaning the study of the end times, the end of the world, end of all things. It's an eschatological hope. Paul is getting us to look far down into the future and say, one day our life in, in, with faith in Christ will be proven to be worth it. One day, all creation will know for a fact that this is the way to life. This is the way to joy. This is the way to salvation. Not not the law, not your works, but faith in Christ. That's our hope. Students, your faith in Christ, my faith in Christ, 
will forever, never, ever disappoint. It will not disappoint us. And Paul makes it clear in verse 6. He says, look, circumcision is not the problem. The problem isn't the, the actual practice of circumcision. Circumcision doesn't help you eternally either way. What matters is this. Do you have faith in Christ? And is that faith producing the fruit of love? Look again at verse 6. He says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Now later on in uh, chapter 6 in Galatians, Paul is going to use a similar phrase. So you don't have to turn there, but in Galatians chapter 6 verse 15, Paul says, For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. So he's using the same, the first part of that phrase, circumcision, uncircumcision, that doesn't mean anything. What matters is faith working through love. Or in chapter 6, what matters is a new creation. So what is he saying? What's Paul getting at? Well, Tom Schreiner, I think, says it best. He says, if faith in chapter 5 is expressing itself in love, like in verse 6, then that notion is not far from saying that faith keeps God's commands. That's the fruit of our faith, the fruit of the gospel. In other words, keeping God's commands is the consequence of faith, the result of being a new creation. So we become a new creation in Christ, and that leads us to obey his commands. Such obedience, Schreiner says, is not the basis of justification, but the result of justification. So we don't do these things to become justified, to become righteous. We do these things because we are justified, because we are righteous in Christ. It's an expression of the new life granted to believers. Schreiner continues, he says, those who do not manifest love or who do not keep God's commands show that they do not have genuine faith and that they are not part of the new creation. So, student, you call yourself a Christian. You say that you possess faith in Christ. That is wonderful. Praise God for that profession. But the question is, is that faith producing fruit in your life? Is your faith in Christ leading you to love your neighbor? Is it leading you to obey God's commands? Is it leading you to love God and to love your neighbor? That's what it means to live in freedom. And if your faith, if your belief in Jesus, your belief in the gospel, your belief in the Bible is not producing these things, then something's, something's happening. Something's wrong. Something's out of whack. And it's an opportunity for you to, to search your own heart and to say, do I really believe the gospel? Right? Am I, am I putting my faith in Christ so that he's now transforming me by his grace? Or am I saying that I believe in Christ just because I don't want to go to hell? Right? Am, I, am I putting my faith in Jesus just because I don't want to be punished? Or am I putting my faith in Christ because it's true? Am I putting my faith in Jesus because I really believe that he died on the cross for my sins, that he took my place, he, he paid my penalty? Am I living my life in response to his 
work? Or am I just living how I want to live? Am I living in the freedom of my own natural desires? Or am I living in the freedom that Christ has called me to? Students, I want you to be able to live in freedom. But in order to do that, we have to place our faith in Christ alone. That's what it means to live in freedom. To do what God has made you to do. To be able to produce the fruit of the Spirit, as we'll get to in the next couple of weeks when we get to Galatians 6. But in order to live in freedom, we have to put away falsehood. right? In order to live our lives truly, we have to get rid of all those things that are false. So if you're taking notes, this is the second point this morning. We have to abandon the false doctrine. We have to abandon the false doctrine. So look at verse 7. Paul is saying to the Galatians, You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? He's saying, look, you were running well. You were believing right. You were living out what is true and real and right and good. Who took you off course? What did you believe that was false that got you off the path? Paul continues this wordplay off the issue of circumcision here in verse 7, but your translation may not pick it up. I know mine doesn't. In verse 7 in the English Standard Version, it says, who hindered you from obeying the truth? But the, the text literally says, you were running well, who cut you off from obeying the truth? Who cut you off? Now, oftentimes, Paul uses athletic imagery. We've seen uh, him talk about, uh, in, in Corinthians, I believe, of, of being like a, a boxer. Uh, that We don't want to just like punch the air and do something that's meaningless. Or we, we beat our body into submission, and, and physical discipline is of some value. Or, or we want to run the race as to win the prize. Or we fight the good fight, right? All of these athletic terms. Well, here he's talking about running a race. And he's saying that in Greco-Roman times, he's using this image of running the race and somebody cutting you off around a turn. They're keeping you from going the direction you want to go. So Paul is saying that these false teachers have come in and caused these churches to swerve off the path. Because of their false doctrine, they've been redirected from the truth. Now, where did this come from? What's happening here? Look at verse 8. Paul says, This persuasion is not from him who calls you. So this call that these Judaizers are giving to the churches in Galatia is not from God. Paul wants to be very clear. It's from someone, Paul, rather, Paul is saying, it's from someone who wants to take you away from the truth of the gospel. Not someone who's trying to lead you toward it. I have no problem believing that right here, Paul is kind of implying some supernatural, some demonic, even some satanic origins that, that this is what's happening, right? The devil loves to distort the truth. It sounds good, it seems right, but it leads us away from God. Paul continues in verse 9. This is, this is why false doctrine is so dangerous. Look at verse 9. He says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Now this is a well-known uh, phrase or idiom in the first century. And we know how this works, right? You have, a, you have some flour, you have some dough, and you want it to rise and make bread, you only need a little bit of leaven. You only need a little bit of yeast, and it will go through that whole piece of dough and make the bread. You don't need a bunch of leaven, a bunch of yeast. You just need a little bit, and it'll work its way through. 
Students, theology, us understanding the faith, us understanding what the Bible teaches, these doctrines that we've received from God. Theology is like a web, right? There there are these different points and they are all connected. And so because theology is like a web, how we understand one aspect of doctrine will influence how we understand all of the others. So in this case, Paul is arguing, if you believe that circumcision is part of the means of salvation, then it will change your view of the work of Christ. It will change your view of the atonement or the cross. It will change your view of how the covenants are formed and structured. It will change your view of salvation entirely. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. And these little errors, these little errors can turn into big problems. Martin Luther once said, in theology, a tiny error overthrows the whole teaching. Now we need to think about the fact that none of us have perfect doctrine, right? All of us have misunderstandings or or false understandings of what the Bible really teaches. And if we knew what those were, we would change our beliefs. We would change our understanding. But none of us has perfect doctrine. None of us has a perfect understanding of Scripture. But we need to realize that not all teachings are as important or as vital to salvation as the others. So Al Mohler, the president of Southern Seminary, he he came up with this image of, of what he calls theological triage. So triage is kind of how you deal with wounds or how you deal with a problem. So let's say uh, you're working in a hospital and uh, there's a a battle going on, a war going on, and someone comes into the hospital, comes into the emergency room with, with three injuries. He has a gash on his arm. He has a hangnail. Uh, that's, that's kind of bleeding a little bit, and he has a gunshot wound in his shoulder, all right? So he has three injuries, the, the gash in his arm, the hangnail on his finger, and the gunshot wound on his shoulder. Now, a triage nurse or a triage doctor will look at all of those injuries and say, okay, what is the most important thing going on here? What is the most severe or the most vital injury that's taking place? Well, obviously, right, it's the gunshot wound. So if, if, if that doctor spends time on the hangnail before he spends time on the gunshot wound, he has not done a good job at being a doctor or, or they haven't done a good job of being a nurse, right? A triage nurse or a triage doctor will, will see what is most important and rank those injuries and then treat from the most important to the least important. So what would that triage doctor or that triage nurse do? They would, they would look at the gunshot wound and treat it first. Then they would look at the the gash in their arm, and they would treat that next. And then finally, if they had time, they would probably look at the hangnail. Why? Because the gunshot wound is a mortal wound, right? They could die. I mean, they could bleed out and die. And so that needs to be treated first. The, the gash in their arm, that's, that's serious. Um, it may get infected. They may lose an arm, but, but they, won't, they probably won't die. And then the hangnail is... I mean, you'd rather not have a hangnail than have a hangnail, but it's not, in the grand scheme of things, a big injury, right? So, so think about that idea of triage, of, of things that are like primarily important, that are secondary, and that are tertiary. And let's think about theology or doctrine that way. There are primary doctrines that if we do not believe, if we do not get right, then we are not Christians, right? So, If we wonder, 
Is Jesus really the Son of God? That's a primary doctrine. If we don't believe that Jesus is God in the flesh, then we are not Christians. We may believe certain things, but we are not historically, biblically, we are not Christians. Well then, so that's like a primary doctrine. Well, what about a secondary doctrine? These are things that we can disagree on uh, and still be Christians, but they're significant, they're important. It, it may lead us to not have uh, strong fellowship with one another. It may mean that we go to different churches. So a great example of a secondary doctrine is baptism, right? We believe as Baptists that, that a Christian who has made a profession of faith is a candidate for baptism. Whereas our Presbyterian brothers and sisters would say that anyone born in a Christian family, an infant who is born into this family of faith is a candidate for baptism. Now we would strongly disagree with who is the right person to be baptized. We're not saying that they're not Christians, right? Obviously our our Presbyterian brothers and sisters are Christians. We just would say that they're wrong about baptism. And they would say that we're wrong about baptism. And that disagreement is strong enough that we would probably create different churches, right? Because who's going to be a member of this church? Is it going to be infants and people who come in through physical birth? Or is it going to be believers, people who come in through spiritual birth? So that's a secondary doctrine. It's important, but it's not necessary for salvation. Well, what about that hangnail, right? What about those things that aren't super important but are, are still there? These are what we call tertiary doctrines. And these are things that we can disagree about and still enjoy a great amount of fellowship and be a part of the same church and, and work alongside one another in gospel ministry. This might be like our view of the end times. Um, so what all do you think is happening in the book of Revelation? And how do you put that book together? Or, or maybe you think about Romans chapter 7 and that weird passage where Paul is saying, uh, I do what I don't want to do and I don't want to do what I end up doing. Wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? Well, do you think Paul is a Christian talking in that passage? Or do you think he's talking about himself before he was a Christian? There are many people who believe uh, either one of those views, but they're that's a tertiary doctrine. That's not really that important in the, in the grand scheme of things. We can hold uh, a disagreement there and still walk in fellowship as members of the same church. All that to say that when we get to primary doctrines, these things for which if we do not believe correctly, then we are outside the bounds of the faith, it matters that we are precise in what we believe. It matters that we get this Right, and that's exactly what Paul is saying. He's like, look, you cannot get this wrong. If you get this wrong, you are outside of the faith. You are outside of the gospel. You are outside of the work of Christ. So look at verse 10. He continues. He says, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view and that the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty whoever he is. So Paul is confident of two things. First, he's confident that these Galatian Christians will hold fast to the truth. He really does believe that these are believers, that they have the Spirit. He said that much in Galatians chapter 3. So he knows, he's confident that the Lord will preserve their faith, that they won't wander off into false false doctrines, into false teachings. They won't run after the works of the law. So he's confident that God will preserve them from falling away. But he's also confident, second, that those false teachers will bear the penalty for their sin. 
Those who lead people away from Christ will face judgment. And it doesn't matter who they are. It doesn't matter what their reputation is or what their stature is like. If they are false teachers, they could be the most moral people in the world, but they will stand before God condemned because they don't have faith. So these false teachings of these false teachers apparently continue in verse 11. Let's look there. He says, but if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? Now, apparently, the Judaizers told the Galatian Christians a lie about Paul. They said to the Galatian Christians that Paul, he normally preaches about circumcision. You know, he, he should have told you that you are supposed to be circumcised in order to be a Christian, but he didn't want to offend you. He didn't want to be offensive. He didn't want to uh, come off as disrespectful. Uh, he didn't want to be seen as uh, a legalist or someone who was unworthy of being listened to. So he just skipped over circumcision. But trust us, that's what Paul really teaches. And Paul is saying, I don't teach that at all. right? If I, if I taught circumcision, why am I being persecuted? The issue that the Judaizers have with Paul is ultimately not about circumcision. Ultimately, the, the issue that the Judaizers have with Paul is about the cross. Why? Because the cross of Christ, students, proclaims that we can do nothing to contribute to our own salvation. That's what the second half of verse 11 says. He says, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. So Paul is saying, that's the issue. The issue is not whether or not I'm preaching circumcision. The issue is I'm preaching the cross. And the cross is offensive to those who would try to earn their own salvation. John Stott nails it again. We have to read this quote. He says, Circumcision stands for a religion of human achievement, of what man can do by his own good works. Christ stands for a religion of divine achievement of what God has done through the finished work of Christ. Circumcision means law, works, and bondage. Christ means grace, faith, and freedom. Every man must choose. The one impossibility is what the Galatians were attempting to do, namely to add circumcision to Christ and have both. No. Circumcision and Christ are mutually exclusive. So we can't have both. You can either have faith in Christ and freedom in Christ, or you can have your faith in the law and the curse of the law. Finally, Paul lets us know a bit of how he really feels about these false teachers praying on the churches in Galatia. Look at verse 12. He's saying, I wish those who would unsettle you would emasculate themselves, that they would mutilate themselves, that they would cut themselves again. And here are two things going on. First, Paul is clearly mocking the Judaizers. But second, he's trying to show them through this, this mockery, through this insult, that circumcision as a work toward salvation, in light of the work of Christ, is nothing more than a pagan, works-based religious act. Back in those days, the pagans, or the, the people who believed in these kind of false doctrines, these pagan uh, gods and goddesses, they were often known for mutilating themselves and cutting themselves. I mean, you think about uh, the prophets of Baal, right? Elijah and the prophets of Baal. They have these two 
altars set up. And what are the prophets of Baal doing? They're calling out to Baal, asking him to rain down fire. And as they're calling out, they are cutting themselves. They're, they're, they're literally mutilating themselves. That's what the pagans did. And that's what Paul is comparing the Judaizers to here. They're self-destructive, enslaved, doomed sinners. And Paul is crying out to you and me and the churches in Galatia, abandon their false doctrine. Finally, once the false doctrine is done away with, Christians can live in the freedom that they have in Christ. But what does that look like today? Like, What does it look like for you and me to live in freedom? Well, that's our third and final point. Paul is saying to you and me what he said to the Galatians. He says this, serve one another in love. That's our third point. Serve one another in love. Now, remember, freedom is not the ability to do whatever your natural desire is. It's not not the freedom to do whatever you want. And that's Paul's point in verse 13. He says, you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Freedom is not yours to merely satisfy your desires. No, it's a summons. It's a call for you and me to serve one another through love. That's what he says. But through love, serve one another. Literally, this text says, become slaves of one another through love. And here's the mind-blowing truth of Galatians 5. In serving one another through love, so when we become Christians, when we are freed from the curse of the law, when we place our faith in Christ and we start to live our lives in the fullness of the Spirit, we are actually able to fulfill the heart of the law. As we serve one another through love, we are actually fulfilling the heart of the law. Now that we are in Christ, we can actually do what the law of God calls us to do. Look at verse 14. Paul says, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word or one message or one rule. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So as we love one another, as we serve one another, we're actually fulfilling the law of God. So we lay down our preferences. We lay down our rights. We intentionally look for ways to honor one another and bless one another. We sacrifice for one another. And guess what? This is hard. This way of life is difficult. It's not easy. It doesn't feel natural. But over time, as the roots of our faith dig down deeper, and as, the, as our faith grows and flowers, then the fruit of love will begin to show up in our lives. So, so, so don't miss this. I pray you see the connection here. Our faith and our love are linked. right? So what we believe is connected to what we do. As I grow in my love for Christ, as I learn more about Him in His Word, as I pray to Him and speak to Him day after day, I will grow in my love for my neighbor. As I seek to be like Jesus, I will begin to look like Jesus to my neighbor. As I live as a member of the body of Christ, as I invest myself into this body, as I find ways to serve this body, I will more naturally exist and flourish alongside the other members of this body. This is the freedom 
that we are called to. This is living. This is life in Christ. Now Paul gives a final warning to you and me to keep our eyes on Christ and to keep our attention on loving one another. Look at verse 15. He says, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Students, freedom left to the flesh will lead to division in the body. So freedom that we live out in the flesh will lead to division in the body. If if you are living in the flesh and I'm living in the flesh and the rest of the members of this church are living in the flesh, ultimately it will lead to factions and division and disagreements that are not healthy, that do not preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, that will ultimately break apart this body. Now we can fall off the path of gospel living two ways. The first way that we've seen all throughout this letter is through legalism. It's what the Judaizers were doing. We use our works as a means to get righteousness. That's that's one way we can fall off the path. But the other way we can fall off the path is thinking that our works and righteousness don't matter at all. If we live like that, as Paul writes here, we will soon live like animals. We will bite and devour one another. Instead, students, I pray that we would live in the freedom that is given to us by grace. That we can be rooted and grounded in the gospel of salvation by faith alone. And then we can stir up one another to produce the fruit of love that pleases the heart of God and brings all of us true joy. Let's live in freedom together. Let's pray. Oh God, I pray that as we are more often than usual physically separated from one another, God, I pray that we would feel the unity, that we would remember that you have gathered us together as the body of Christ, that we are all, we're all members that make up this one body, that we're all siblings that make up this one family. And although we're physically separated, I pray, God, that you would help us to to feel and to know and to live in the truth that we are united by your Spirit. Lord, I pray that you would help us to live in freedom, that we would rest in your finished work, Jesus, that we would be filled by your Spirit to go out and and fulfill the law of love, to love our neighbor as ourself, That that we live and we operate from the position of righteousness, not trying to earn our righteousness. God, help us to abandon false doctrine, to to root out anything in our hearts and in our minds that leads us away from you, to do away with those false teachings, those false doctrines, those untrue ideas, and instead fill our minds and our hearts with the truth of your word. God, we pray that you would change us, that you would stir us up to love one another well. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.